0: We now have decades of experience with temporary migration, and it has shown that exploitation is rife and normalized within the systems. So the only way to stop that is to stop the source of the problem. So we do need status for all.
1: Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by Professor Faye Faraday, To discuss migrant worker rights. Now whether it is in our food supply or our frontline healthcare, migrant workers are very often our essential workers. Yet in the system of temporary work that we've devised, they are routinely exploited. And in the course of this pandemic, we've seen what that systemic power imbalance leads to. Mistreatment, inadequate housing, fatal outbreaks to the point that Mexico held back on sending temporary workers to Canada out of safety concerns. Professor Faraday is an expert on labor rights. She has been active in community organizing with migrant and marginalized workers for over 25 years, and she has published three landmark reports on migrant worker rights here in Canada. Professor Faraday, thanks for joining me.
0: Thank you very much for inviting me to to join the podcast.
1: In the course of this pandemic many Canadians have realized major challenges with the way that we treat migrant workers here in Canada. And these problems have long preexisted COVID, unfortunately. And you've been writing about this for decades. And for folks who are less familiar, how many migrant workers would be in Canada at any given time?
0: If we look at all the different categories of people who are here with temporary permits, who are the farm workers, the migrant care workers, all the low-wage migrant workers, everyone under the International Mobility Program, international students who are working, refugees who are working, undocumented people. There are 1.6 million people in Canada Mm -hmm. who are in the country working with temporary resident status. That's one in every 23 people in the country.
1: You've written about the blurry lines between these two categories, but we have the Temporary Foreign Worker Program, which is a legal pathway for people to come and and work in Canada in the sectors that you're mentioning. And then you have this underbelly of recruitment and really deceiving the workers about the possibility of permanent residency here in Canada and profiting from that. And both of those pathways obviously present real challenges, though.
0: Well, and the way that you've presented it actually creates a misunderstanding because that really toxic predatory recruitment that I've written about where workers are being charged thousands and thousands of dollars for jobs in Canada, that's happening within the legal pathways that we have constructed for labour migration in this country. To think that there is a world of shady recruitment and then a clean pathway is a false dichotomy. What we have in Canada are a number of different legally constructed pathways for labour migration that through law, make workers extremely exploitable. The ones who are experiencing the greatest depths of exploitation are workers who are low-wage workers, who are mostly coming to Canada from the Global South, who are overwhelmingly racialized, overwhelmingly Black and brown workers. And they are on work permits that tie them to an individual employer. Those workers are overwhelmingly being recruited into those jobs through private recruiters who charge them illegal recruitment fees. So they are coming into the country paying up to two years of their earnings in the country that they're coming from in order to get low-wage jobs in Canada. That's illegal.
1: And that's why you have written pre-pandemic in a prescient kind of way. But the line between labor trafficking and temporary legal migration is blurry because even within the legal context, you have recruiting happening in an illegal way.
0: I would say that there is no line between them, that practices that are exploitive in the forms that create indentured forced labor are happening completely within the legal pathways that the government has created for labor migration. And the more that we pretend that it is not happening, the more it becomes entrenched and continues to happen. You know, and on top of that, you know, those sort of predatory practices are being expanded out to international students who are, again, being forced to pay recruitment fees to recruiters who are being given education that is and not what has been promised to them, that does not grant them pathways to permanent residency. And that actually becomes a cover for bringing them into the country for exploitative work. These are practices that are happening across the country, and there is a continuous refusal to accept that this exploitation exists, first of all, and that it's baked into the system.
1: And you're right about a refusal from some quarters to recognize the challenge. I have met with employers who have said, well, we we need to fix the temporary foreign worker program. And by fix, they've meant renaming the program as opposed to addressing the structural challenges. And those structural challenges, not only is one tied to a single employer, that employer controls their housing in many cases, that employer controls whether they get to stay in the country or not in many cases. And as a result, the individual who is already coming without the language skills and the access to counsel and resources that would put them in a position to defend themselves properly in a situation like this they are in a position where where they're they're going to be exploited by an employer if the employer wants to engage in that kind of activity
0: that is absolutely correct the systems that we have created depend on perpetuating an extreme power imbalance between the workers and the employers first of all All of these labor migration programs absolutely depend on maintaining deep structural inequalities between the North and the South. If people were not deeply impoverished and living in communities that are underdeveloped or where there is underemployment, there would be no labor migration to begin with. So what you see are systems that are predatory on that transnational inequality and that maintain that transnational inequality. As an example of that, when we look at migrant farm workers, there are farm workers who have been coming to Canada for the entirety of their adult working careers, some more than 40 years, many who are coming intergenerationally. So there are multiple generations from the same families who are coming, none of them ever having the right to status in Canada. So that's one layer of the, the inequality that's baked in. Another is that all-encompassing control that private employers are given through the system. Complete control over the workers' right to work in Canada. The control over their housing. The ability To terminate their employment with virtually no repercussions. And in some cases, for example, within the seasonal agricultural worker program, the capacity to have workers deported within 24 to 48 hours because they control the sole source travel agency that brings workers in and out of the country. And then there is the exploitation that is created through this predatory recruitment system. When you talk about the response to it, there are two key things. one is that employers say, well, it's just a couple of bad apples, right, that are giving this program a bad name. That is not true. This is a systemic problem that has been documented for decades. I have been documenting this for 30 years, and there has been virtually no change. And the second is that when employers ask for change, what they ask for is to expand the scope of these programs, to replicate these labor migration programs into other fields, for example, expanding the scope of what is primary agriculture, expanding it to include all seasonal work, expanding it to include food production. And what they're doing is actually creating sacrifice zones where core parts of the economy are hived off and relegated to workers without status in the country, without the capacity to enforce rights, and in a way that actually depresses the quality of rights in those sectors.
1: And when we talk about Specific sectors. Obviously, the agricultural sector and the meat processing sector has come under greater scrutiny in this pandemic where we've seen outbreaks and largely because of the housing conditions and the close quarters in which people live And A perfect example of, we're not talking about a few bad apples, employers as a class in that particular sector have not been, especially in this pandemic, taking appropriate steps to ensure their workers are safe. And we've seen our immigration minister recently announce a pathway to residency for people who have been in hospitals and a long-term care setting. And he referred to them, I think it came out of Quebec, but as guardian angels. And so here's, here's an opportunity... And maybe the politics then allows for this to to happen more easily, but creates a, a more direct pathway to resonance for, for that particular sector. But if the problem is systemic, presumably it takes a systemic solution.
0: It does. And I think... What we see is a real division based on class in terms of how different groups of workers are treated. When we think about where migrant workers and undocumented workers are, they are everywhere in the economy, and they have been performing absolutely essential work before the pandemic, through the pandemic, and forward. The meat processing plants were the first big site outside of long-term care homes where there were massive outbreaks of COVID. And the workers themselves were blamed for it because they carpooled or they lived in, you know, multifamily units. But they're living like that because they are low income, but they're also working side by side in conditions that are ripe for spreading COVID. For the migrant farm workers, again, dozens and dozens of workers living in bunk beds, side by side without protection. Of course, there's going to be spread. And these are things that migrant workers and advocates warned about before COVID hit. We warned that this was an absolutely predictable outcome, but the workers have been blamed for it. So you can see some of the systemic racism that comes through in terms of identifying racialized workers as the threat and refusing to take their concerns seriously. But then only some people are considered worthy of admission to Canada, right? The people in the, on the frontline healthcare work, but the migrant workers who've been growing our food, the migrant workers who have been cleaning those healthcare facilities, the migrant workers who've been cleaning the retail stores, delivering food to you, everywhere across the economy, there are migrant and undocumented workers who are doing critical work and all of them deserve status.
1: We had a hearing at our industry committee with the executives of the national grocers and took them to task a little bit because they had reduced this pandemic pay premium in the middle of the pandemic and while they were still raking in record profits. And it was frustrating. And I think many Canadians shared that frustration because in the course of this pandemic, many of us have come to this realization that essential workers are not being protected and paid for their labor in a way that they ought to be. And when you frame it in that way, where so much of the essential work is undertaken by migrant workers in the first place. When we have that realization about how we support essential workers, it means rethinking how we support migrant workers at the very same time. And it was shocking for many constituents in Beaches East York, I received some correspondence about how Mexico had halted sending people to Canada because of our inability to protect migrant workers. And there have been what you've described as some band-aid solutions with dollars, but we have yet to see that wholesale reform, apart from the most recently announced targeted solution for healthcare workers. And so for those who have come to this realization and want to see this problem fixed, if you were in my shoes, what are the recommendations that I ought to be driving forward with to Minister Medicino and others?
0: The key recommendation that has to come out at this moment is to address the root of the insecurity and the root of what makes exploitation possible, which is the temporary status of the workers. You have to remember that this world of temporary status, where we've got one in 23 people in the country here working with temporary status, that is a very recent innovation. That is not the way the world worked before the last decade. Until the 2000s, Immigration was permanent immigration. That was the rule. That was how my family got here. That was how so many of our families came to Canada until employers and governments realized that it is cheaper to privatize all those risks, those economic risks onto workers and not let them have permanent status. So you cut off the risk of unemployment, you offshore all the costs of educating people, you order your just-in-time worker and you send them off when you're done with them. But that is a profoundly dehumanizing way to treat human beings. It creates incredible insecurity in the communities where people live, and it provides profound opportunities for exploitation, which have then become normalized. You know, what we hear now is, oh, well, Canadians won't do this work as a justification for having all these people with temporary status. But that is the laziest statement, and it doesn't finish the sentence. Canadians won't do that work because it is so profoundly without rights. It is so exploitative. They will not do it on those terms. And anyone who has the capacity to do otherwise will. The only people who are left doing the jobs are people who are legally prohibited from working elsewhere. So that's our starting point. The only way to change that is to return to a system of permanent immigration where people arrive with status, status on arrival, status for all. What we've also seen through COVID is the way in which people who are undocumented are also absolutely critical to keeping our economy going. So we can't pretend they're not part of the economy. Canadians have ignored the hundreds of thousands of undocumented people who are essential to sustaining our economy. And they need to have status. They need to be regularized. We can't in this moment say, oh, we're gonna pretend you don't exist. We're gonna forget that we saw your labor. We need to get to the root of the problem, which is this proliferation and normalization of workers and members of our community without status. We cannot have one in 23 people in our communities who are essentially deportable that is not a healthy society. That is a society that is ripe for normalizing exploitation.
1: It does seem that we are subsidizing certain industries on the backs of human rights. And Absolutely. And when we look at agriculture and meat processing as an example, but it, it was frustrating to see, and I understood the government's intuitive response to say, well, we need to deliver money into the sector to make sure workers are safe and there can be proper physical distancing and PPE. But my thought was, we've already subsidized Cargill and others on the backs of these workers to date. We've said, here's a minimum wage in these provinces, but oh, by the way, you can pay less if it's for workers that are coming from another country with fewer rights. And now we're going to subsidize you further, even though you're raking in billions of dollars in profit. And one is left shaking one's head a little bit that the industries themselves can't step up and pay people as they ought to be paying them in the first place. And that's just on the wage side, far apart from other labor protections that other Canadians can expect to have in the workforce.
0: There has been money that has been directed towards the agricultural sector during COVID, but it has been directed towards employers. That money, apart from two weeks pandemic pay that was supposed to go to workers, which didn't always go to workers, right? That money has gone to employers. It hasn't gone to actually changing the system that makes workers vulnerable. But when you look at those things that create vulnerability, you're right. It's the range of different exemptions from core human rights that um, facilitate exploitation. So in Ontario, the largest province that brings in migrant workers, migrant farm workers have no right to unionize. They are excluded from a vast range of core employment standards, including minimum wage, overtime, rest periods, public holidays. We have, by law, deliberately created areas of work where Workers have no rights, where they have fewer rights than we expect to be the norm. And, you know, we can't pretend that we don't know this. It's far too late to put on that mask of naivety and innocence. We've been hearing this documented in detail for generations now, and we can't pretend that we're going to go back to some normal and forget again.
1: Well, I hope that this moment and the fact that more Canadians have read about this in the news and are seized with this, now I've received more correspondence on this issue in the course of this pandemic than I had previously. And when we last spoke, it was years ago, and I'd read your reports and I was advocating at a time based on some of those conversations for more open work permits, but the call seems to be a much more significant one, this notion of status for all. And I'd like to unpack that a little bit because previously I've understood the larger aim to be strong and accessible pathways to residents. And I've thought of the caregiver uh, pathway to residents where there's clearly... And I know there, there have been challenges and backlogs, but if you take that individuals who have come working, they can expect to become a permanent residence after a period of time of being in Canada and working. Is that what we envision where we say we're going to have a regular regularization plan for people who've been in the country for X amount of time working in Canada, documented or undocumented or otherwise, but we are going to then establish a pathway to residency for new people coming? Or is it as soon as you're here, your PR and away you go?
0: What needs to happen is that people get permanent residency status when they arrive. That is what immigration used to look like. And so I have to stress that this is not new. This is something that was the norm until 15 years ago. The reason that pathways to residence don't work, what happens under those scenarios is that people work for a certain period of time with temporary status. And if they they can jump through all the hoops, then they can apply for permanent status. Throughout that pathway, while workers are temporary, they are subject to exploitation. The ability for an employer to control whether someone can move on to the second step means that immigration has been completely privatized into the hands of the employers. The way the two-step process works is that employer has to sponsor a worker to come. So, That privatizes the access to immigration in the hands of employers in a way that is not democratic, but it allows for exploitation because then access to status becomes a point of leverage for exploitation. If you do this, I'll support your application for status. If you don't comply, you're out on the next plane. And what's also happened is that those paths to status have narrowed or disappeared. So it used to be that migrant care workers had an automatic entitlement to permanent residency when they completed their two years of work. That is no longer the case. There are 2,750 migrant care workers in two different categories who can have an opportunity to apply for permanent residency in each calendar year. No migrant worker knows in advance whether they'll be eligible because it's the first 2750 in the calendar year. So that's not a pathway. That's a lottery. And it's only available to that small and shrinking group. It's illusory that people can access them. But the work isn't illusory. The need for the work isn't illusory. That is permanent, and so the people who are doing it should be permanent. The only reason to keep them on temporary status is to make them more compliant and exploitable by employers.
1: When it comes to regularization of people within Canada right now, there are people who have come through temporary pathways and there are caregivers, as you mentioned, that are have lost the lottery perhaps there are people who have come and worked for decades with temporary status, and they would have a connection, no doubt, to Canada in a serious way. There are others in the course of the constituency work that we do, and there's a lot of immigration work that we do. At times, we see people come and claim asylum, and then they don't have a legitimate asylum claim, and they would then be returned. How do we start to draw lines around the people who are in Canada right now with respect to a regularization approach?
0: The fact is that Canada has not tried to address that. There are people who have been working in this country for decades. There are workers who have been coming to this country for decades to work and beginning that ability to regularize them and bring them into status is necessary. What needs to happen is that it be developed with the participation of the people who would be subject to it. What has happened with many of the reforms that we've seen around migrant labor is that they are responsive To employer demands, for example, facilitating access to workers, or the band aids that have been created actually make things worse for workers or are impossible to access. I'm just going to give you one example. One of the things that was created as a so called response to exploitation was the ability for workers to apply for an open work permit when they had experienced exploitation by their employers. Now, that sounds good on paper, except the legal threshold to prove exploitation was very high and difficult to meet and people need legal assistance to be able to do it. And then if you succeed, All it gets you is a temporary open permit that gives you an opportunity to apply for another closed permit, which sends you back into the system that created the exploitation in the first place. So if you are designing remedies that aren't actually responsive to the realities of the people living it, you are going to end up with flawed policies that look good on paper and then actually create a roadblock to real change. So in looking at how do you design a regularization program, that actually allows for safe regularization. You need to be able to develop it with the workers who are subject to it, to, with our community members who are living with that precarity and to hear their voices directly. What's been important as we've gone through this period of COVID is that you increasingly see migrant workers and even undocumented workers speaking out directly themselves, controlling the presentation of their lives instead of having reporters or other people paint a stereotype about them. Migrant workers and undocumented workers, international students, all those members of our communities with precarious status actually have ideas and analysis about how to build security in the system. They're the ones who are living it. They have the best information and they need to be part of building the solution. We have to remember as well, I think it's important to stress that the Template programs of temporary work grew out of a system of systemic racism that was specifically, explicitly about preventing the permanent immigration of Black and brown people. Up until the 60s, when my family arrived here, it was illegal as a brown person or a Black person to immigrate to Canada permanently without special dispensation. So when the Migrant Care Workers Program was first developed in the 1950s, in 1955, it was about bringing Black workers from the Caribbean to do care work, but without allowing for permanent immigration. And that same model was at the root of the seasonal agricultural worker program, where again, the idea was to be able to have access to cheap Black labor without allowing racialized workers to immigrate on a permanent basis. So we can't forget that that is the foundation of what we have continued to do moving forward.
1: And not only the foundation, but then you see the practical realization of that today, where the outcome remains the same, where you see high skills workers are able to access a pathway to residency in an immediate way. Whereas the essential workers to our society, which we have undervalued for a great number of years, you have previously said, these are folks who are not only low income coming from the global South, these are racialized people. And we are, as an outcome, treating them not only differently, but significantly worse. And if we care about addressing systemic racism, this has to be on the agenda to solve.
0: It is. And it's, you know, if you look at who is able to access permanent residency through those higher economic class routes to permanent residency, there is a distinct racial skew between workers with pathways and workers without. And there is a distinct racial skew in the treatment of the workers who are in those precarious low-wage jobs, right? If you look at the difference between how migrant farm workers getting COVID in the thousands, literally the thousands in Canada, and being ignored until people died, that is very different from the approach to people in long-term care facilities, right? And to be clear, personal support workers are overwhelmingly racialized, but it's the nurses and the doctors who get the spotlight. I mean, they are at risk as well, but there is a way in which our policy erases systemically the contributions of racialized working-class people and devalues that without understanding that when we've stripped everything away and people were in lockdown, The people who have kept society running are those working class racialized workers who never had the option to stop working or to work from home. And made that possible for everyone else.
1: Well, I do hope it is a a lesson that we learn in the course of this crisis. I do feel very similar. I spoke to an expert, Pat Armstrong, about nursing homes, and she's been writing about this for years and years and years. And now, because of a military report that is just really reiterating the very same concerns that she'd been highlighting for years, it's like the world has woken up and now people are talking about national standards and strengthening the dignity of of the conditions in, in nursing homes. And I hope the same holds true here, where you and others have been writing about the systemic exploitation in the made-in-Canada rules. It's not one bad apple, it is the rules themselves that engender this, and we have an opportunity to fix it. And there is more of a spotlight on this issue now than there has been.
0: I agree with you, and I think what's really important is to recognize the ways in which Political resistance to seeing the problem is built into the fact that one in 23 people in Canada have temporary status. When I have been speaking with politicians at all levels across all parties, the big response is always, well, I'm not hearing this from my constituents. And the reason you're not hearing it from your constituents is that those one in 23 people in Canada with temporary status don't have the right to vote. And so it is easy to ignore their wishes. But if you look at those people, you know, let's look at what's happening in the agricultural sector. There are way more migrant workers than there are farm workers owners, right? There are more migrant workers than there are employers. And so why are you not listening to the migrant worker voices? Everyone is subsidized in that sector, except the people doing the labor. As people who have political voice in this country, we need as elected officials to take seriously the rights of the people who are living in our communities, who are our friends and our neighbours, who are the one in 23 without permanent status. And we need to ensure that they get permanent status now. It's the only thing that will stop the cycle of exploitation.
1: And I've certainly heard it. I I was saying before, I've received some correspondence from constituents. There are also those who serve undocumented workers in in our communities, community health centers that have raised these issues and have said bringing people into the system means they will be better off, but we we will all be better off. In advance of interviewing you, I was looking at some of your more recent comments on Twitter and you had retweeted a document. And for those who wonder what an example might be of employer exploitation. It was a document dated August 13th, 2020, that an employer puts in front of folks to sign. And this is one of the lines, but requiring people to say, I selfishly choose to go against my employer's wishes and my home country's instructions. And the rest of the documents very, very much like that single sentence. But the idea that anyone would sign that who can understand what it says and informed of the consequences of that, nobody would sign that document. But they're preying upon people's vulnerabilities. They're preying upon people's lack of access to resources and support. And they're preying upon people's access to the English language. And they're preying upon people's vulnerability that they, what are they going to do but sign this document? And and when I read that, I just was like, here's the perfect example of an employer acting in an exploitative way.
0: For people who haven't seen these documents, there are a range of so-called contracts that employers of migrant workers have demanding that workers sign saying that they will not leave. These are mostly migrant farm workers who've been having these signed, saying that they will not leave the bunkhouse, they will not leave the premises for the duration of their time in Canada. And it says, like you were reading, this really offensive. I am being selfish by going to the grocery store, like all the rest of us can do. What it means is that they are literally confined to working in the fields or living in the overcrowded bunkhouses where they have become infected with COVID. They are not allowed to go into town to get their own groceries, which means that they are being given meager groceries that they have to pay sometimes above market price for that are culturally inappropriate and insufficient. They cannot go to the banks to send money to their family, which is the reason reason that they're here. They can't go into town and have any sort of socially distanced engagement with the community. They can't go to church. We are all subject to the exact same public health protocols. And employers are exploiting their power imbalance to impose essentially house arrest on their employees. And in some situations, uh, that confinement of movement is enforced by private security. They are doing that as a way to control their workforce, but also to double down on this racist stereotype that it is migrants who are the threat when it is the migrants themselves who came here, went through quarantine, and caught COVID in Canada. That's happening with migrant farm workers. There are migrant caregivers who have been locked in with their employers since March, not being able to leave the house of their employer at all. One worker I heard from went for a walk in August, the first time she had been out of doors since oh March, and she was promptly fired. Oh my right? God. The inhumanity that is being exercised because of the power imbalance that employers hold, it's unbelievable. I've been doing this, like I said, for 30 years. The cruelty of how employers are acting right now is stunning. And we have to be done with this system. We cannot allow this to continue. And it is not some bad apples. We've created this system. We have to clean it up.
1: Faye, I really appreciate not only your time today, but I really appreciate your bringing attention to these issues long before they were highlighted in the course of this pandemic. Hopefully in the throne speech, this will be an issue identified with a a solution and that we are able to, in the months ahead, solve this problem and not only solve the problem for people who are coming to Canada in the future, whether it's in caregiving situations or agricultural situations or or beyond, but also we have a regularization plan that is put in place to make sure people have status here here in the country. So thank you, Faye. I really appreciate it.
0: Well, thank you very much. And I'm always happy to continue the conversation.
1: Thanks for joining us on another episode of Uncommons. Remember to subscribe at uncommons.ca for future episodes and recommend future guests and topics on social media at BYNate.